Uh, I'm Dr. Shomod Chattopadhyay, an associate professor at Vishwabharati and senior fellow at the Impact and Policy Research Institute, New Delhi. On behalf of the team of the Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies, I welcome you all uh, to this city conversation series. Uh, India is urbanizing rapidly and Indian cities contribute to about 63% of India's GDP. A large section of this population includes migrants and migration is a livelihood strategy adopted by millions of people, especially the poor in India. And while the cities do provide them employment opportunities, a substantial proportion of them are engaged in informal activities characterized by uh, low earnings, insecure jobs, uh, precarious working condition, absence of social protection, and dependence on day-to-day -day earning for sustenance. The poor condition of work experienced by the migrants are aggravated by the poor living conditions in the urban areas. And India uh, has multiple protective legislations and welfare programs, uh, some in place since independence. But uh, labor migrants' lives are hyper-precarious because they are being excluded from both labor laws and uh, citizenship rights. They are often outside the purview of urban planning and policies. For example, their settlements remain uh, 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 largely illegitimate. Moreover, the labor migrants are, are subjected to social hostility. And the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, devastated the normal life and, and led to a massive humanitarian crisis. Effects of the lockdown have been particularly severe on uh, India's migrant workers, the domestic maids, construction workers, rickshaw pullers, street vendors, rack pickers, uh, and various other kinds of informal service providers. And uh, given the predominance of informal production and labor relations in the Indian cities, uh, a cessation of all economic activity is bound to have uh, severe impacts on their employment and earnings. And there are some comprehensive survey reports uh, that show the economic hardship and the humiliations the migrants are facing. Uh, IMPREG also conducted a telephonic survey in uh, May this year, uh, covering uh, roughly about 3,200 city makers across the 50 cities in India. We also found that six out of 10 workers had lost their job during the lockdown. And quite a significant proportion of them wanted to return to the place of work after the lockdown. And it exposed the lack of employment opportunities in their uh, native places. Yeah, their choice was uh, indeed between the devil and the deep sea, between starvation and pandemic. And unfortunately, the governments of India, uh, the governments in India uh, have no systematic understanding of their existing and had not anticipated the scale of the migrant exodus. Uh, this COVID-19 and lockdown has exposed the uh, clearing gaps in Indian cities' uh, policy rhetoric, which has systematically excluded the migrant workers to facilitate uh, uh, economic growth. And this crisis uh, is a window of opportunity to rethink some of the uh, crucial questions like what explains the uh, sudden visibility of the migrant workers in the time of a uh, public health crisis? And how do urban planning and urban governance policies and schemes respond to the migrants to the cities? What implications do these policies and schemes have on the lives of the migrants? What are the possible ways to improve their potential uh, standard of living in the city? In fact, uh, uh, the Center for Habitat, Urban, and Regional Studies at IMPRI, along with Industra Global and uh, CityMaker Mission International, has launched a discussion series, the State of Cities, uh, hashtag city conversation. And in this talk series, we have been engaging with uh, experts on urban and regional studies uh, to understand the challenges that the Indian cities face and uh, the ways to overcome such challenges. And now we are today delighted and honored to have with us Professor Priya Desinkar. Uh, Professor Desinkar needs no introduction. 
is a prof. She is a professor of migration and uh, development at the University of Sussex. Uh, is it, she's an internationally recognized authority on South-South uh, migration research and policy analysis. analysis. Uh, professor Desinkar has played a key role in influencing the uh, global policy discourse on internal, internal migration and development. Uh, she has over 20 years of research and consultancy experience in South Asia and Africa with International National Research Institute donors, NGOs, uh, covering policy research with a particular focus on rural urban migration and social protection policy in urban areas. And recent work uh, of her has focused on the links between migration and climate change by examining the role of remittances uh, in improving resilience and the links between adaptive social protection and migration. And Professor Bessinger's recent major research programs include the DFID funded Migrating Out of Poverty Research Consortium. And as research director of uh, MOOCs, she has played a key role in designing and overseeing the mixed methods research in five global regions, South and Southeast Asia, as well as East, West, and Southern Africa, where she has worked closely with uh, Asia Research Institute, Singapore, the Center for Migration Studies in Ghana, and the African Center for Migration and Society in South Africa. She has also developed a strand of work within the consortium on the migration industry, which has resulted in uh, path-breaking research on brokerage in the migration of domestic workers in Ghana and brokerage in the migration of low-skilled construction workers from Bangladesh to Qatar. And Professor uh, Desinger's most recent book is on circular migration and multi-locational livelihood strategies in India, which is the key reference text for scholars working on international migration. And uh, most importantly, she is uh, currently advising the Indian Ministry of Urban Affairs on migration-related issues uh, in the wake of COVID-19. So once again, I welcome you all. Uh, I, I welcome you, ma'am, to this city conversation series. And also, we have a very distinguished panel of discussion. Professor Arup Mitra, Professor Arbi Bhagat, and Dr. Nabila Ahmed will also join us. So uh, uh, Professor Desinga today will speak on uh, invisible migrants and hidden occupations in the city. Lessons for research and policy. So over to you, ma'am. Thank you for that extremely uh, comprehensive introduction, Dr. Chattopadhyay. And you raised uh, correctly a lot of the key issues already that I want to talk about today. So um, I will be talking about uh, invisible migrants and hidden occupations, you know, why that's been such a major issue during the COVID crisis. And what lessons that huge uh, debacle can offer us now going forward. So I would straight away without further ado, like to share my slides. I'd also like to say a, a warm thank you to Dr. Kumar for inviting me in the first place. And it's a real pleasure to be here because I see lots of familiar names and faces here. So um, uh, thank you again. So let me share my screen. I hope it works. Um, there we go. Yes. Is it okay? Yes, it's okay. Okay, so um, let's just start straight away. I wanted to put this um, image of very flashy skyscrapers here because this is the kind of city that many countries aspire to. But, you know, of course, all these cities are built by migrants whose efforts are very little recognized and they remain on the margins of the very cities that they build, which is the greatest in injustice you can think of, really. So first, let me um, start with a 
quick roadmap of my presentation so that you get an idea of what I'm going to talk about. And I will aim to speak for roughly half an hour so that you have enough time for comments from the discussants and question and answers from anyone else who's present. So my focus is on migrants who work in low paid precarious or hyper precarious conditions dirty, the so-called dirty and dangerous jobs at destination. And these people are often circular migrants. I mean, I won't go into definitional issues here because, you know, you could then start debating whether they are truly circular migrants or not, because many of them are in the city for prolonged periods of time. But, you know, their family um, is often still back in the village and they may be investing for a future there or at least maintaining very active links. So I want to uh, start by looking at the historical causes of exclusion and othering of certain groups of people and how that links to migration and then how these differences, you know, how the kind of hierarchies in village society are in a way reproduced in urban areas and in work relations in the city. Uh, and industries to exploit certain groups of people. Uh, then I'll move on to the blindness of policy and industry to these differences. Um, also blindness related to data on migration and the poor performance of welfare measures for migrant workers. Um, I'll talk how this all connects to the fiasco during the lockdown of you know, so many people being left without support and uh, then go on to discuss um, the need for better analysis of the structural causes of migrant exclusion. And finally, new directions for policy, because that's the focus here today. So let's start with um, what happens in villages where migrants originate from. And um, this may sound like an obvious thing to say, but there is some discussion around this and there's not actually a lot of agreement on why migration happens in the first place. Is it distress? Are migrants pushed out? Are they going for other reasons? Uh, I mean, of course, there is no one single answer and everything is complicated and interconnected. So there are historical patterns of material and social exclusion uh, within many agrarian rural societies. Um, and the people who tend to migrate the most are those who uh, may be, you know, small and marginal farmers or landless people. They are often trapped in relations of labor extraction, indebtedness and humiliation, I should add, with upper castes and landlords. They, uh, leave, they lead a life which has no dignity and that is continuously reproduced through practices of discrimination, stigmatization and othered, othering, so, such as not sharing, drinking glasses, you know, the language that is used uh, to address them and other behavioral restrictions placed on them. They may even be coming from a context of conflict. And this I've heard quite a lot in conversations with uh, migrant workers recently. Um, and, you know, um, this is something that is very rarely discussed. And it could be conflict between uh, classes and castes, or it could be conflict over land, which is increasingly becoming an issue where there is an intense pressure on land and land fragmentation is getting worse. 
And there are also references to illegality and how they want to get away from that kind of existence, you know, where they're being pushed into illegal ways of earning money because there aren't enough jobs around in rural areas. Even though change has taken place due to education and connection with, with the outside world, there are backlashes against those who dare to rise above their station. So, you know, some progress has been made, but it's a back and forth process. And remuneration for manual work is extremely poor, even in non-farm work. And practices are followed to reinforce subjugation and relations of power, such as late payment, part payment, non-remunerated work outside the job, and the way in which the payment is made in itself. So these are the little things that make a lot of difference to how people feel about being in the village. And migration is seen as a way of renegotiating these caste and class boundaries. Um, oh gosh, where is this cursor? So here's a little um, sort of graphic representation of what happens to migrants once they arrive in the city. They're often uh, short-term or circular migrants, as I said, and they um, are these days increasingly um, traveling to work in urban industries and services such as con construction work, uh, the textile and garment industry, street vending, rickshaw pulling, and domestic work, which is a major, major sector for women who come from relatively disadvantaged backgrounds without a lot of formal education. And these flows are dominated by lower castes and other disadvantaged groups. They work mainly in the informal sector without proper contracts or any kind of security and job stability. These poorer migrants live on the margins of the, of the city, both physically, but also socially in a way. And I'll go into that in, in a bit more detail. They don't have citizenship rights due to a lack of identity documents and registration under labor laws as well. So they are basically not really part of the sort of formal structure in any sense of the word. And they are therefore unable to access social protection and welfare programs as we've seen uh, being uh, sort of played out in a very sort of ugly fashion recently. So invisible migrants and hidden jobs. This is what I really wanted to emphasize today. So although physically present and in evidence everywhere, migrants are very invisibilized in many, many ways. So first of all, they may not exist at all on the formal books uh, of employment, you know. So in an industry, these um, people at the lowest level who are doing those dirty and dangerous jobs are not actually on the book. So for all intents and purposes, they are invisible. Uh, they may also be moved around frequently or they are scattered. And often that is um, to avoid detection. Um, it may also be because there are different projects emerging all the time, like in, in construction, you know, they are being moved around by their tekedars or contractors. They may even occupy hidden spaces, such as small informal manufacturing units or construction sites or you know, uh, places of home-based work. And this is actually very important and isn't recognized enough that there are many, many, many home-based occupations 
you know, there are traditional ones like BD making, but there are occupations where people are traveling to the city and yet are home-based. By home-based meaning, they're not in a kind of, you know, formally established manufacturing unit, but may actually be working in somebody's backyard. And that kind of arrangement seems to be happening a lot. And there's very little understanding of that. And it's also very important for women. Even the largest corporate houses have such workers at the lowest tiers of their operation. And it's not by accident that they are, you know, in this kind of informalized precarious situation. It's very much by design as these are the archetypal flexible and exploitable workers that industry depends on so much because they're all competing against each other. They want to keep their labor costs down. They want to be able to fire workers as and when they can. Um, you know, if their business contracts, as we saw during the lockdown, they have absolutely no ties to these kinds of workers and they can let them go. They are not accountable to them. So then we keep our attention on these micro spaces of exploitation, like home based work. So uh, in some kinds of occupation, chains of some contracting and subcontracting mean that workers may not even know who their employer is. And it's hard for the authorities to detect them. You know, they're kind of lost and hidden in the system. Workers at the lowest levels of manufacturing industries and construction may be kept in a bubble by their recruiters so that they depend on them for everything. Uh, and their wages, working and living conditions are determined by these recruiters and other intermediaries. Some enterprises are extremely fragmented where different components or stages of the production process are carried out by different groups of workers, many of whom can be home-based. I mean, we see this in the garment industry a lot. But even other kinds of occupations that are completely invisible and below the radar. I mean, for example, in some recent conversations, women were saying that they were working in soap making factories in Gujarat, for example, you know, for soap making factories where um, the raw material would be delivered home to the worker, you know, together with wrapping paper and other equipment. And their job was to wrap these bars of soap. And then the, those wrapped bars of soap would be collected from them at the end of the day. I mean, these are the kinds of jobs that, you know, the data has nothing on those kinds of jobs, really. And we don't even know what these jobs are. And there's really a need to gather more detailed, very disaggregated information on this. Um, because they're so important for poorer migrants, but they are not very visible and the understanding at the policy level especially is very poor. So where migrant workers are positioned spatially and relationally must be understood against the backdrop of a neoliberalized and globalized economy where there has been a progressive dilution of labor protection and industries are engaged in the race to the bottom on labor standards. So as I said, they're all competing against each other and labor standards are the least of their concerns. And they don't, you know, because that means more expense basically for them. So now let's turn to policy. Uh, I hope I'm not taking up too much time. 
So there's weak political commitment to improving the data on circular migrants because, you know, I mean, I've been drawing attention to this issue. Many other people have drawn attention to it as well, including Professor Bhagat, who's here today with us. And I think it's precisely because people that we are talking about belong to these excluded and invisible groups that this kind of you know, situation has continued for so long. More than a decade ago, I proposed a figure of 100 million circular migrants in India based on estimates by different industry. At the time, I did that to draw attention to the inadequacy of statistical estimates. Not much has changed from, from that time to now, but I have heard recently of plans being made to carry out industry-wise surveys. So finally, something is being done a little differently to gather more information on these lower level workers that I'm talking about, which is to be welcomed. Another major issue is that there's little understanding of why programs to protect migrant rights and welfare have performed so badly. I mean, of course, the answer lies in what I have said already, you know, it's the systematic exclusion, it's the sort of intentional exclusion, I should say, of that poorest segment. Um, and as everyone is aware here, I'm sure today, that the money gathered in the name of migrants, such as the Building and Other Construction Workers Access Fund, remains terribly underutilized. So there's, you know, crores of rupees in these funds, but the, the sort of drawdown of those funds is very poor. And we really need to analyze the reasons for that. You know, and there are structural reasons for that, which are not being talked about, and we do need to talk about them. So let's turn to what happened during the lockdown. So the indifference and inability to understand migration patterns and experiences coupled with poor data meant that the sudden emergence of millions of migrants out of the woodwork, to, to, so to speak, you know, they were hidden up to then, but they suddenly came out during the lockdown. It came as a shock to both central and state governments. I mean, it was extremely striking that there was no knowledge of what was happening on their very doorstep. Uh, government assistance was offered. I mean, as we know, it came a bit late and it was structured on the assumption that migrants were either registered under um, the Interstate Migrant Workmen Act or BOKWA or had identity documents on them to prove that they were Indian citizens, you know, in need of assistance during this emergency. But a majority of them did not have those documents or were not registered under labor laws, again, for these same reasons of, you know, the kind of social and economic and political exclusion. As it turned out, a very small percentage had those requirements in place. I mean, one of the figures that really stuck in my mind was that out of the two lakh or so migrant workers who are, um, you know, in Gujarat, who were in Gujarat at the time, only 7,000 were registered under the Interstate Migrant Workmen Act. So that's nothing, you know, hardly any. So most of them are not. Uh, trains were not accessible and migrants endured unspeakable suffering and misery. It simply was not a scene we wanted to see. 
in the 21st century in India. And everybody was, you know, had a sense of disbelief and horror. And I'm sure government and ordinary people and everybody would never like want to see that repeated again. Migrants lost faith in employers, contractors, and government. Nobody picked up the phone when they rang people they thought they had a relationship with. You know, some of them had been working in these companies for years, and yet the phone was not answered. They had long-standing relationships. They were owed money that they weren't paid. So they were just left in the lurch. And where could they then go? Their real safety net was their family back home in the village. And that's where they went. Many went on foot, as you know. So what do we need to do differently to stop this from happening again? So there's more need for recognition of the social and cultural processes of othering and discrimination that structure India's labor markets and welfare programs. At the same time, the benefits of migration for the poorest and most marginalized need to be recognized. And the discourse needs to shift beyond distressed migration and the perpetuation of poverty and dependency. Uh, earlier efforts through the working group on migration made important suggestions related to legal protection, housing, social protection and data. But now there's a need to address the structural causes of exclusion and precarization of India's migrant workforce at the policy level, I should say. So I believe that we need a kind of, you know, we need a sort of broad approach um, which encompasses different objectives at different levels. So the first thing that needs to be done is some kind of capacity building to really understand these issues in a systematic fashion. So capacity building for middle level bureaucrats as well as researchers and NGOs who are working on migration issues because you'll find that there are many diverse opinions on this issue. And sometimes those are not very helpful. They're inimical to actually the welfare of migrants, you know, where there's a belief that migration is essentially a bad thing and it needs to be stopped. So I feel that there's a need to kind of, um, you know, create some sort of awareness of what migration is really about. There's a need to have a sensitization program for the public. I feel that the public is very indifferent in normal times to the suffering of migrant workers, or they're ignorant about what's going on. I mean, they see, you know, the, the children of migrant workers crawling in the in the dirt near construction sites. And I think they're at a at a loss as to what to do. So I think we can help the public also by sensitization programs and also information on how to help. Um, at, at the policy level, there's a need for a more coherent approach across different line departments and ministries. I mean, for example, a national migration policy. Now, as uh, Dr. Chattopadhyay said at the beginning, I have worked extensively in, in various African countries, and I worked very closely with the Center for Migration Research there. And together we uh, pushed through a national policy on migration in Ghana. Uh, and that has helped to kind of create a more coherent approach in the country, bringing together these you know, divergent views on the issue. And that example has been so useful that other African countries in West Africa have asked them to provide them with, 
you know, advice on how to bring that about in their own countries as well. I really feel that something like that is needed in India because the different line departments and ministries speak a different language when it comes to migration. I think there should be a new working group to example the feasibility of interstate welfare programs and safety nets, and also, um, you know, other issues related to how welfare programs are being implemented at the moment. There's a need for watchdog organizations, and this could be citizens organizations, migrant associations, NGOs, to monitor the performance of schemes such as the PM fund and other initiatives. What happened to them? You know, how far have they been successful or not? And, you know, IMPRI's done some surveys that could well be something that IMPRI could take up. So on that note, I'd like to finish and thank you all for listening to me. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Professor Desinga for your uh, very interesting and talk. Uh, as you rightly mentioned, like uh, in your lecture, it is quite evident that the migrants, uh, they live at the margin, both physically and socially uh, in the Indian cities. And uh, you also mentioned that the benefits of different welfare uh, entitlements uh, do not reach them due to the lack of ident ident uh, identities and uh, uh, the residential proof. In fact, uh, the living and walking condition of an average Indian migrant, uh, despite their uh, substantial numbers, often fall well below the standard of decent work. And, and also you mentioned about the, there is little political commitment uh, to improving them. And also uh, you mentioned about how the migrants they occupy the hidden spaces. There are micro spaces uh, of exploitations. The workers, for example, you mentioned that the workers, they are not knowing who their actual employers are. And they are also engaged in activities which is practically invisible. Uh, due to, for one example, is that for the fragmentation of, uh, of stages of production. In fact, uh, there is a major gap in the data as they as they simply do not rather cannot count the migrants in general. Uh, for example, you mentioned about the circular migrants and the problems related uh, definitional uh, ambiguities which are related to the circular migrants. It is indeed difficult to count. Uh, the circular migrants because of uh, complex subcontracting practices and so on. And uh, in fact, we saw in the immediate uh, post-lockdown phase how uh, how the people, uh, uh, they were scrambling around to know how many migrants need buses, the trains and foods and so on and so forth. And yes. also the data on migration uh, of women uh, uh, for work, they are particularly weak uh, because yes. Uh, they are often in less visible uh, uh, from uh, uh, the work on work or occupations uh, in which they are mainly engaged. And uh, uh, also uh, there is little understanding uh, uh, of why the program to protect migrants' rights and welfare programs they are performing uh, so, so poorly. In fact, in fact, until the novel uh, coronavirus outbreak and uh, the consequent lockdown imposed by the government migrant workers, uh, they lived hidden from the public case. And with the imposition of the lockdown, uh, a, a large section of labor left and the cities, uh, they suddenly find themselves crippled. And it is not just the resident, but the different industries. They do that, uh, they are also now filling the pinch. And it signifies, in fact, how important they are, uh, the contribution of the migrants are. And as a way forward, you, you rightly mentioned about uh, there is a need for more recognition of the social and cultural processes of discrimination uh, that structures India's 
labor market and welfare program. You also uh, emphasized on the importance of capacity building for the middle level bureaucrats. And finally, you uh, argue for a national uh, level policy of migration. So, so these are some of the uh, things. So uh, also, we have a very distinguished uh, uh, panel of discussion. So uh, before elaborating or before placing some of, I have some questions, but before uh, uh, placing those questions, let me first move to our uh, panel of discussion. Uh, we have uh, Professor R.B. Bhagat, Professor Arup Mitra, and Dr. Nabila Ahmed. Uh, uh, may I now request Arjun to introduce Professor uh, Bhagat to uh, make his comments on uh, Madam Ma'am's lecture. Arjun? Yes, yes, sure, sure. Welcome, Professor Arvi Bhagat. But let me congratulate uh, Professor Priya Deshinkar for uh, very lucidly uh, covering many points. Uh, during our last deliberation, uh, Professor Arvi Bhagat uh, really emotionally charged up lecture he gave during that uh, tough time. And sir used, uh, uh, I would say, many harsh words uh, to the state, to the society at large. And uh, Professor Arvi Bhagat is uh, Head of Migration and Urban Studies at uh, International Institute of Population Sciences, uh, Mumbai. Sir, over to you. Thank you, Arjun, for inviting me and giving this opportunity. And uh, I must thank Professor Desinger. Uh, she has uh, made excellent presentation, very focused, very comprehensive. And what is today we need in respect with migrant workers and migrants. Uh, so, this is fantastic, I think, and uh, I don't have any disagreement, I, I support, but at the same time, I would like to look at little uh, in a wider perspective. Uh, not only that migration is an issue of labor, labor migration, uh, but it is more of a intersecting or having interface with society uh, and politics, and of course, economy, when we talk about uh, labor migrants. So today is a, a, constitution, a constitution day. And in the morning, uh, our director has led the recital of the constitution. Uh, so very important day. And when you look at our preamble of the constitution, the three words coming, freedom, equality, and fraternity. The most we have been discussing freedom. So migration may be freedom enhancing, bondage creating, for some of us who are also migrant, uh, we have certain freedom, economic freedom, our positions are better. But for many people, it is a bondage creating. And in that res respect, Professor Desinger has highlighted how things are becoming worse for certain category who are uh, circular migrants who are in a very precarious situation. So freedom part is there. Then equality, a lot of discussion goes whether migration is increasing equality or inequality. So the evidences are in conflict, uh, are not uh, conclusive, uh, but there are certain philosophical and epistemological issues related with that. The most crucial thing is the fraternity. Sense of belonging, where they do belong. And therefore the issue when we talk about migration policy, what is that in migration policy that we should try to achieve? So migrants right. Migrants' right is nowhere recognized. I don't find any document where something is there, migrant and migrants' right is being recognized. Recently, we find something uh, uh, like uh, one nation, one ration card, or rental housing for migrant worker. 
So migrant rights uh, talking about, at least we are not prepared uh, to, to accept. Why there are maybe many reasons. But then we have labor rights. Labor rights are, you see, it's uh, not applicable or just it is a toothless uh, for even for the non-migrant labor. What is important is the citizenship rights. Are they citizens and therefore the question of fraternity, uh, freedom, equality and fraternity, sense of belonging and therefore citizens right, that is violated and that is very crucial whether migrants are citizens of this country or not. When they started walking on the roads, we realized that they, these are the people who are migrants. And therefore, we have to be much more, not only as a researcher, but must be a proactive in safeguarding and meeting the, the, the citizenship rights of these people who are excluded. And Professor Desinger has highlighted what type of exclusion is there. And very deep, if you make more and more research and you find deeper and deeper. So that is one point. The second point is that when we talk about migration policy, there are pitfalls of migration policy. In the name of migration policy, the state is using surveillance. The state is restricting the freedom of the people. And therefore, we have alternative. We have to distinguish between migration and migrants. Migration and mi migration is something which is our fundamental right. And it is, it is there in the constitution. The right to move is a fundamental right under Article 19 of the Constitution. There should not be any debate on this right. This is inalienable right. And therefore, to my mind, we should talk about policy for migrants, not a migration policy. A policy for the migrants. Why I am emphasizing this? This can make very things clear. We are talking about the migrants. Migrants is a category of citizens of this country. A category of citizens of this country whose Citizenship right has not been met with, violated. So this is what. The third point I'd like to make is that everything is unfolding as Dr. Chattopadhyay has said that our 60, more than 60% GDP coming from urban area. How urban transformation is going to take place? Now, nature of urban transformation, if you see, nature of urbanization, if you see, highly exclusionary. Although wealth is produced, GDP is produced, and therefore, if we want the citizenship rights of the people, of the migrants and all people are to be met with, we have to produce urban citizens. And urban citizenship should be inclusive. And therefore, we have to think about the, the uh, urbanization, which is inclusive. And now there is the opportunity. Now government is talking about Atmanirbhar Bharat. Be vocal on local, but becoming vocal and local, it should be bottom up. It should be inclusive, it should be participatory, it should be people's empowerment. So these are opportunity, but it is it, it is articulated, not in articulated in a better way, but it, it is again leading to the corporate way of, of, of being vocal on local. So I think this is clarity is needed and we must have uh, some, some activism and also our research, of course, research is very important. I think uh, I will stop here. Uh, so this with these remarks. Thank you, Professor Desinger. It was very nice listening to you. Thank you. Uh, yes, ma'am. If you want to respond to uh, Professor Vargat's comment. Uh, yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I can't 
tell you how much I'm in agreement with everything that he said. You know, it is true. You know, migrants are not recognized as citizens. That's the bottom line. And that's why they're constantly um, subject to these kind of, you know, basically suspicious approaches as if they don't have a right to be where they are, you know, and they need to be guaranteed that fundamental right. And, and of course, urban development must become more participatory and inclusive. And I think urban planners themselves are now starting to recognize the failures in, in you know, past master plans. But I think there's a problem with the power that urban authorities lack, you know, vis-a-vis um, uh, government, there is some kind of mismatch in power there, which I'm not fully uh, or favored. I should uh, go into it in more detail, but they also have constraints, I understand, in being able to implement some sort of pro-migration approaches. But yeah, I'm in complete agreement. I don't have any differences with what uh, Professor Bhagat said, and I, I'm glad for you know, migration policy or policy for migrants, which is basically what I mean, you know, they need to be, uh, you know, included, they need to have a voice, they need to have a, uh, they need to be able to participate in what's happening, because they never are participating, they're left out of everything, plans are being made without them, in fact, they don't even feature, that's why I showed that image of polished, you know, high high towers in the beginning. If this is the city that's being visualized. It doesn't really have room for migrants. You know, so the, the visualization, the conceptualization of cities and master plans for cities uh, need to be rehauled completely to make them more participatory and more inclusive. So thank you very much, Dr. Bhagat. Thank you. I mean, Professor right. Bhagat. Yes. Right. Should I go to invite, yes, our next panelist? Yes, Arup, sir. If you are here, your camera is off. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, but I, I would just like to, you know, interject and also add that uh, uh, a national policy for migrants or that is per se because we don't uh, really don't have the count. Uh, every time it comes, we have you know fourteen labor commissionerate or you know, state government sub movement. Uh, but uh, I really would like to uh, submit to this August uh, uh, deliberation that uh, the government over past few months has been uh, uh, making uh, in the process of making a, a national employment policy, uh, uh, which is constituted and it is uh, led by eight uh, union ministers, minister of state and minister of independent charge uh, from various ministries. Uh, in fact, I remember when uh, Professor Bhagat in September, August, uh, when we were discussing also Professor Arup Mitra, we had, uh, I think, uh, our interaction and lecture that time. That was constituted and, you know, at, from very high level, it came that within two, three months, uh, it will also have a, you know, subcommittee to look, look into my uh, migrants, as Professor yeah. Deshikar also mentioned that a committee came. Uh, without any you know, further ado, let me introduce uh, Professor Arup Mitra. Uh, Professor Arup Mitra is professor at Institute for Economic Growth, IEG, New Delhi, and uh, uh, one of our top migration experts. Sir, over to you. Thank you very much. It has been a great pleasure listening to ma'am. With great lucidity, ma'am has uh, elaborated the issues, the most complex issues she has uh, 
brought uh, before us with great lucidity and I'm very grateful to you for giving us such a clear understanding. Often we tend to believe that uh, the migrants are engaged in wage jobs, but very rightly you have pointed out that many of them travel to the city and they are actually engaged in home-based activities about which we have no information and about which we have no <coughs> policy as such. Um, so huge, but uh, one concern uh, that we have huge range of intermediaries, as you have mentioned very rightly, that uh, between the actual employer and the employees. Now, how do we tackle this situation? Now, in the context of the recent labor uh, code reforms, uh, mainly four points were mentioned. One was the wage uh, code reform, the industrial relation uh, uh, code reform, and uh, the de-skilling or uh, the reskilling of the workers who have been uh, retrenched by the employers, and the fourth relates to providing health and good working conditions to the workers by the employers. And in this context, I was trying to look into the details. What they say that the migrants who have come from different places and are earning less than 18,000 a month should be given certain kinds of facilities by the employers. But that's it. I mean, it doesn't really elaborate on the intricacies of capturing yes. them, or, or getting them included into that entire citizenship formation program. Uh, so as, as uh, Dr. Bhagat was mentioning, uh, I get to see that uh, there is a huge range of uh, pitfalls within this system. And uh, as uh, Dr. Arjun Kumar also mentioned very rightly, that we do not actually have the um, correct number um, or the figures on migrants. Uh, on population census, you know the limitations. I don't have to tell you that yeah. um, uh, how migration figures are grossly underestimated. The yeah. floating population is not at all captured. Even those who have been residing in the cities for, for decades are not actually captured uh, adequately. Yeah. And when it comes to the reasons for migration, etc., they are all underestimated. So I hope that the, the national uh, policy on migrants uh, will be able to look into some of these aspects. Now, finally, I have another concern that is uh, the exclusionary organization that we have been experiencing. And many of these policies do not actually have enough space to accommodate these migrants. Now, let us say that, okay, this uh, labor code, uh, code reforms are undertaken very seriously. Now they are kept in the public domain. After the feedback is collected during the November, I think they will be sent to the president for his uh, acceptance. And after that, uh, and subsequently, it will become the labor, the laws. Now, one important thing is that um, uh, relates to the land uh, uh, policy. But do we actually have any space uh, specially designated for the migrants. Now, if that is not there, then we will still be able to see dualism in the labor market, the dualism in the transport system, the dualism in the housing structures, and dualism in the access to basic amenities. So that, that is what uh, keeps me bothering, that uh, unless we have a proper land policy for the migrants, so still they will be exposed to all kinds of harassments. And simply the employment policy will not be able to take care of these aspects. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am, if you would like to um, uh, have any comments to uh, Professor Mitroska. 
definitely. Thank you, Professor Mitra, for raising some important um, questions here. I mean, you raised a number of questions. Uh, so let me respond to two of them, which um, struck me as very critical. The first is the issue of intermediaries. Now, uh, as we all know here, you know, intermediaries are absolutely rife in many of the kind of, you know, uh, migration streams involving people from remote areas who have low levels of education, who have, uh, you know, who don't have strong social networks in cities, who don't have the means to themselves go to the city. Um, you know, they don't have the money to or the connections or the references to get a house or get work. And that's where intermediaries become critical. So they're very important for them to access work. But at the same time, they're very well placed to exploit them. So, and for the industries also, these intermediaries are very important because they want a certain number of migrants to be supplied at a certain point in time. They depend on them. You know, they, they will say, okay, get me 50 workers, you know, now. Uh, and these intermediaries have their networks, you know, their sub-networks in villages. They have village-level recruiters or who may be ex-migrants themselves. Now, what I want to highlight here is the kind of both sides of the thing, you know, they are very, very important for both industry in finding workers and for migrants in finding work in the city. Uh, so they are absolutely crucial for connecting them, but because of their vantage point, they can also be very exploitative. And what happens in these industries is that they hand over the whole, uh, you know, management of labor to them. And you know the the intermediaries this, themselves may be getting paid, let's say, uh, you know, a thousand rupees per worker per day or whatever the going rate is for that industry. But by the time it translates to the actual pay packet of the worker, it could be a third of that, you know, because they often recruit them on advances, you know, and the advances if you actually calculate the daily uh, pay based on that, it's much smaller. But because of the situation of the workers that they are bringing, they are able to do that kind of exploitation. So I would say that rather than thinking about eliminating them because they're important for you know, connecting workers to their jobs and they're important for ensuring that work is accessible, uh, we should uh, think of some kind of way of regulating them. And we know from experience that laws that attempt to regulate them have not been very successful. So there needs to be some kind of innovation there, you know, also in the sense that, you know, there could be uh, rewards for those who are, treat their workers well, you know, the, the way that was done on environmental standards, you know, industries who take responsibility for the welfare of their workers through contractors, you know, could be recognized more uh, publicly. Uh, so I think that kind of pressure and through recognition, through public pressure is likely to be more effective than laws because people find a way of getting around the laws. And that's what we see repeatedly with any kind of legislation that is put in place. So that was one thing. And the other thing I think you said was that even though the new labor codes and uh, are being you know, uh, developed to offer better working conditions and um, you know, pay and so on, you know, uh, again, you know, how do you actually ensure that the 
those who deserve that assistance are included. And it's linked to my previous point. It's linked to the point of intermediaries. Who are the people who control them? And what can be done to make them more accountable to their workers? So these workers need our help as educated citizens or people, researchers, NGOs, you know, who can then apply pressure on industry to comply with welfare. Um, you know, guaranteeing a better working conditions for their workers. So the pressure has to come on the industry. And I always like to cite this example of the garment industry and what happened in Bangladesh. You know, there was the Rana Plaza disaster. And, you know, that drew attention to the appalling conditions that those people were working in, in the garment industry. And it drew uh, attention internationally because a lot of those garment industries were supplying clothes brands in the West and, uh, you know, in Europe. So the European consumers boycotted those products because they realized that they were being produced in sweatshop conditions and highly degrading and dangerous conditions. And then the companies applied pressure on the government and the companies in Bangladesh. So that is how it then happened. I'm not saying that it necessarily resulted in, you know, big permanent changes, but that was probably more effective than introducing some kind of law without any kind of public support behind it. Do you see what I mean? You know, I'm trying to emphasize the importance of gaining public support for monitoring what's happening with labor conditions, working conditions. So I better stop there. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, yes, Prasamitra also highlighted one very important uh, point. Uh, uh, but since we do not have any data or registry, national migration information system, something we really uh, uh, introduced this time. Uh, Professor Arup Mitra also highlighted this point of 18,000 rupees per month, uh, something oh. in the line of minimum wage. Uh, the minimum wage uh, committee report has come and uh, the average wage figure was around 10,000 and you know the rural urban composition something so but uh, yes professor mitra is really uh, uh, highlighting but ma'am your point also of uh, exclusion and inclusion of in the identification of beneficiaries that has uh, you know uh, uh, has been a major constraint uh, in that regard, uh, we have been writing a lot for the need for requirement of data. Uh, we also have Dr. P.C. Monan sir here, who has been also uh, spearheading the National Statistical Commission for a while. And uh, sir has been also highlighting that the, the NSS migration survey round, you know, which last happened in 2007-8, and also we get the census figure after such a long time, long time. very long time. So what can be the periodicity uh, so we were also suggesting that since this census would be affected, why not have an intersensational uh, survey or anything so that uh, we as a researcher have some very important tool to look yeah. upon this thing. And, uh, but, and we have been highlighting during the lockdown days that uh, uh, to the tune of a uh, dollar a day and an Android phone, especially uh, because you need Arogi Setu and so much because there are so many of health and uh, other issues. Uh, sir also read ARHC, but uh, let us uh, uh, go to our next panelist here. Uh, Sonadeep, sir, why don't you introduce Dr. Nathan? I wanted to briefly uh, interject. You know, I wanted Please. to respond to your point about the intersensal survey. Um, you know, uh, Vietnam did this in, um, I think, 2004. Uh, they had a specifically designed, you know, a, a, a migration survey, because let's remember 
that neither the NSS nor the census are designed as migration surveys. You know, so there's a limited amount of information that they can gather about those kind of intricacies of migration. But if there's a specifically, you know, designed migration survey, you're bound to get more rich in data. And uh, the government of Vietnam did that. It's one of the few governments in the world that has done this intercensal survey on migration for the country, you know, so it's a very important uh, resource. Just wanted to say that in response to what you just Let said. me also briefly ma'am, add one thing. I think Professor Bhagat can highlight more on this. Uh, mm -hmm. Sir, whenever we talk about this migration policy or data, one aspect kick in very, you know, uh, hugely, which is the issue of informal workers. So most of our, you know, migration thing gets, you know, lost into that. And then we do not have any liver. Uh, the government has also now announced one more committee to look into to, to procure this sort of data, but largely uh, on informal sector workers in, in cities. Uh, Professor Mitab Kundu is also co-chair of, of uh, that committee. Yes. Details are yet to be out. Yes. Uh, uh, Somya Deep, sir, why not? To, yes, please introduce uh -huh. Well, so now, uh, now I request Dr. Nabila Ahmed uh, to uh, please offer your comments. So but, uh, just before uh, uh, Dr. Nabila Ahmed is associated with Sheffield, Inst Sheffield Institute of International Development, University of Sheffield. So it's over to you, Dr. Ahmed. Um, hello, yes, thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yep. Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, IMPRI, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. I won't take up too much time because I know we're at the end of the hour, but uh, I wholeheartedly agree with everything, uh, obviously, Professor Dzeshinka has said. I'm a former student of hers, so that's not a surprise. And also, obviously, with what everyone on the panel has said, um, in particular, Dr. Uh, Professor Bhagat, who has also in, informally been a supervisor of mine in the past. So, and I'm really, I'm really also glad that every time I had a thought, uh, Dr. Kumar or another panelist kind of raised it already. So. So all I wanted to add was really something around the, the kind of new policy directions that Professor Dishenka presented at the end. And we call them new policy directions, but actually, I mean, I've been working on this since 2012. Obviously, Bria has been working on this for much longer and others as well, but none of the issues actually seem to have changed. What's happening this year and what has happened since April 2020 is they have been exposed and highlighted. But a lot of these issues in terms of exclusion, inclusion, um, negative public attitudes, poor policy formulation, lack of data, invisibilization of migrants have been ongoing for decades, to be honest. What's happening now is there's greater attention. So it's good to mobilize this um, for policy influence if it's possible. And there's two main issues I wanted to raise. The first related to all the issues that have already been raised. The, one, the first is this tension between interstate and interstate migration, right? We don't have sufficient data on these numbers. I mean, there are estimates and, you know, I think they vary from about 10% of all migration within India to, to much more, but we don't have a full understanding of what's happening with the interstate migration. And due to that, we, we don't have a very clear uh, or robust um, systemat systematic solution to the problems faced by interstate migrant migrants, right? So my work primarily focuses on access to the PDS amongst migrants, access to social protection. But while there are many, um, you know, exciting uh, new policies in place, including One Nation, One Ration Card, they're primarily being implemented at the interstate level. And I know that uh, One Nation, One Ration Card was designed to increase portability of access amongst labor migrants. 
uh, to date, uh, even though discussion started in 2018, there hasn't really been any record of success in terms of being able to access uh, rations, PDS and so on, once a migrant leaves the place of destination because they don't have, because obviously right now, everything is linked to the other card. So while these problems have persisted over the years, they've changed in the way they've become arguably more difficult because of the digitize, uh, direction towards digitization. So, I mean, that warrants a whole other discussion, which we don't, may not have time to go into here, but that's that kind of tension between interstate and interstate governance of migration is something we really have to think about if we're going to solve these issues of exclusion. And then finally, uh, just the question of gender. Uh, you know, it's been raised um, to some extent, but also we, I, I was looking at some of the research uh, being done by IMPI as well, in terms of the upcoming issue of food security, we're going to see another devastating um, kind of occurrence of food insecurity, particularly amongst labor migrants because of the pandemic. And I remember, we all remember seeing in the news um, around April that a lot of migrants who are leaving, they called it the exodus, were saying it's either COVID or it's hunger, oh, it's either COVID or dying of starvation. So obviously we have to think about that not only prioritizes the importance of programs like PDS, but also we have to think about the dynamics within the household and the, the kind of invisible invisibilization of women migrants within the overall invisibilization of migrant data and what kind of impacts the pandemic and kind of underlying um, challenges regarding migration are going to have because, you know, already we have the devastation of COVID, but uh, together with food insecurity and uh, ineffective kind of social protection policy, it's a huge, concern. So I don't know if we have time to go into all of that, but it'd be great to hear some thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Ahmed. We really uh, uh, highlighted the point of thalinomics, which came in the last economic survey and learned from there because uh, uh, the ration really, you one, can, one also gets in the villages, uh, but uh, I would say this new India is aspirational and uh, people also want to eat good. And not just, you know, because the most of the what people are getting, now they are having 45, 55, 60 kgs of rice at their house. And then, you know, selling back uh, uh, many stories, uh, many professors and researchers have been hi highlighting, be it Andhra, be it North. Uh, now people are also selling it on, you know, uh, on a much lower cost to get some cash or even get rid of it. Uh, but there are also chunk of population which really require those. Uh, Professor Priya Deshankar, if you would uh, allow, we can have some input from uh, more of our discussants and then you can uh, choose to answer uh, if we can incorporate some more voices. Okay, sure. Sure. Okay. Somia Deep sir. Uh, okay, so uh, then, 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 then just let me uh, request uh, Dr. Simi Mehta, who is the CEO of IMPRI, uh, to chip in and make her comments. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Professor Deshinkar. It has been so fascinating to hear you and all the respective panel, respected panelists intervene. In fact, some of my uh, discussion points have already been spoken and in part also by uh, Dr. Nabila just now. So uh, it might be a repetition and I would be really quick in making my discussion points. Uh, so, ma'am, uh, the implications of uh, environmental changes and extreme weather events have all have often led to the creation of environmental refugees, whom I uh, like to refer to them as survivors of environmental change. In fact, uh, this um, the word refugees very much comes from the coloniality of language. 
uh, in fact it is they who are the migrants who who form a part of the migrant lot in the urban and peri urban spaces who in fact again become the agencies for the neo colonial exploitation as you mentioned that there is a race to the to reach to the bottom of the labor concerns um, and then there is another added dimension on on women who are faced with a double dilemma on account of the normative societal subjugation and also um, in facing the brunt of the policy neglect of the basic human rights be it on food clothing shelter and etc etc so i would again um, i i resonate what dr nabila had had to say that uh, women actually uh, form a part of the for, of becoming further invisible in the whole lot of invisible migrants to the city so in this how can we move towards or move forward with the agenda of new india and atmanirbhar uh, bharat uh, given such inherent uh, structural inequities and uh, quoting uh, professor bhagat on the on the occasion of constitution day uh, in fact it actually creates the whole idea of we the people and they the people um, you know uh, compromising the whole objectives of uh, constitutional objectives rather of uh, securing justice for the people socio economic social economic and political so your views on that ma'am over to you dr somidi thank you so much for your wonderful thank lecture. you thank you sir even even i wanted to ask this question to to professor priya deshinkar because of a global war uh, because ma'am has really highlighted this precarious condition and um, do you see now in 2020 this especially uh, happening in south asia uh, more other than africa latin america or other parts of the world is it now becoming a very uh, a unique issue in south asia be it uh, because our labor market is really informal uh, i'm not just limiting ourselves only to uh, india and uh, there has also been the issue of the south asian migrants uh, professor rbia rajan have not been able to join because he has been highlighting this issue that those who has been working uh, working in middle east or other places they have not got wages or or many things they have returned uh, those issues of from international migration is also coming inter district migration and many things we have talked uh, let me quickly go to our uh, next panelist uh, mr samir unlesser sir are you there Yes, your video is off. Yeah, uh, actually, as always, I am traveling, so no the video is off. Let yeah. me let me briefly introduce, sir, uh, ma'am. At the state level, uh, during this pandemic, what has happened? This exodus of migrant workers. Many state governments have constituted constituted palaya IO, and uh, a lot of you know uh, active things were also being done. but there has been a lot of movement and i would also say positive story uh, constructive work uh, from city governments so uh, to have the point also from the administration we have mr samir unhale uh, who is now the joint commissioner of uh, department of municipal administration at uh, government of maharashtra prior to this uh, mr samir unhale was also ceo smart city Uh, of thane uh, thane city uh, in mumbai metropolitan region and sir a vast experience in in working with the city governments uh, also in india and also with many city governments abroad so without any without wasting any further time uh, samir sir over to you uh, arjun ji thank uh, thank you very much for uh, this opportunity to interact uh, i think all of us are migrants uh, 
maybe the word differs is socio economic status those who are well educated those who are economically well off may not feel the pang of being a migrant but uh, all of us at some stage or continue to be migrant that was my first take uh, over here uh, secondly the i mean as a species we are extremely territorial so the territorial instincts are quite strong and therefore this us and they uh, this part is a recurrent theme in any discussion that we do across cultures and across geographies and probably across times the uh, third uh, input actually was uh, in, in actually uh, simi ma'am mentioned about environmental uh, refugees or migrants uh, probably what we witness now along with the seasonal migration was this pandemic migration in which the fear psychosis was so strong that somehow uh, the it was more of a mob behavior by the way you know people interacted uh, the people so moving and it was quite a site and the media was also extremely you know uh, point on point to highlight the miseries which really came up and immediately the administration also responded in whatever force it could do on to that uh, migration and urbanization are very closely linked we cannot think of any city or a city region uh, without uh, considering migration and maybe just two examples probably i could share was one uh, probably mumbai was one of the first areas probably in which we had a rental housing policy under the mumbai metropolitan region it was uh, announced in 2008 in which the rental housing uh, was made precisely to take care of the younger uh, migrants laborers for the for opportunity for them to stay so this was one of the examples which uh, in, indicates something was done for the <coughs> considering the migrant issue secondly the slums uh, and uh, slums issues of uh, most of the cities uh, do come up because of there is no appropriate as was rightly mentioned land policy or a proper framework <coughs> to take care of the migrant labor who are important engines of the city growth so uh, we will have to think of you know more uh, humane and compassionate uh, programs and a broader paradigm to you know consider every possible uh, uh, people who are coming in i know it is bit idealistic and uh, uh, not every time we can have the luxury of morality finance goes strong <laughs> and then obviously the the more closer people get get a greater resources than the other people are uh, left outside so that is a inevitable part of human nature and especially group behavior or uh, of any denomination that we might think of but yes uh, the way urbanization is going to grow and has been growing uh, migration uh, will have to be a very important part of that and uh, uh, any issues that we discuss when we talk of inclusion probably including the migrants is also a, a important part that will have to pay it's a evolving field and at the resources that are available at city level uh probably will have to think of some proper and good models in which uh, cities can take care of uh, our migrant uh, i must use the word brothers and sisters who at this moment might be migrant as we were probably a decade back so arjun thank you this was very limited points i wanted to share on the intersection of uh, cities and migration so thank you thank you thank you thank you so much sir for also putting across the administrative uh, side of view Uh, let me quickly go to Dr. Zimingli, who is joining us from Wuhan. Ziming, are you here? Yes. Let me introduce Ziming. Yes, uh, uh, Ziming uh, uh, was a researcher at University 
of Florida in their uh, Department of Urban and Design. Now, uh, Ziming uh, is currently faculty at Wuhan University. Uh, uh, Ziming, welcome and why don't you go on? We, yeah, yes, we are not able to hear you. Yes, Ziming, uh, I think now it's you. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Please go on. Okay. Thank you for your introduction. And I have several questions based on the comparison between China and uh, India. Uh, once I studied on the slum situation in India, but I find that the migration situation is worse because many, many generations uh, spend their life in cities as um, the blue collar worker or even working for uh, working as a um, the informal laborers, but their children, the grandchildren, they don't have uh, enough social mobility. So they stay in the, uh, the lowest level of the society. So my question is, so what's the problem between the, um, the infrastructure provision and the taxation collection from this group in India? And um, is, is there any roles that NGOs or some other um, power that could help them to accumulate education, accumulate the human capitals and help them to have a higher social mobility? And the second question is, uh, we already look at the aspect of a production that the migrant workers that they can contribute to the economy. But what about the consumption contribution they can bring to the cities? Because they are the potential group that can generate a lot of consumptions. And then this is the whole circle of the macroeconomy. And then um, what is the, the, how, how do you say, the similarities between China's migrant problems and the Indian's migrant problem? This is what I want to find. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ziming Lee, for being so brief. We have a, a, a PC Monan sir. Monan sir, if you'd like to chip in. Yes, your camera. Yes, please, sir. Yes. Uh, I must apologize, Dr. Arjun, because I logged in late and missed the main portion. So it's not fair that I make any comments, you know. But anyway, one issue which I wanted to flag, you know, which is of main concern is, uh, as all of you are aware, the migration is one of the major topic of discussion. But in the last few months, we have heard from many of the state governments uh, passing laws restricting uh, employment for outside people, which is a very major issue, which is likely to have an impact on migrants from interstate migration. Uh, we have seen at least four state governments passing legislations recently, Madhya Pradesh, Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, and that. four of them, and many other state governments almost uh, coming out with the idea that they should restrict uh, employment to this. So this is a major concern uh, because maximum migration takes place for economic reasons. And if this kind of populist schemes are unlikely to have an impact on migration, and lead most of the migration is then will go to the informal sector because formal sector, if the manufacturing sectors, others are concerned about these laws, um, the migrants will be forced to go to still uh, you know, informal side. 
and that is my major concern i don't know that this is was a part of your plan to discuss today but this is an important issue that has come to the fore and uh, which would have a very serious implication i'm sorry i missed the i, mean, I knew it's a very important and interesting discussion Yes, sir. Yes, sir has been writing a lot on this issue, but sir really uh, uh, raised a very important question, which I also wanted to uh, uh, get into the deliberation here and also to uh, to submit it to Professor Priya Deshinkar. That, ma'am, uh, a lot of this migration, since it is happening in informal sector, it is also uh, uh, I would say heavily led by uh, young men. Almost ninety percent of the migrants, you know, and the age bracket is really fifteen to seventeen to thirty. Uh, how do you see that? Because that is really the invisible character which is coming, uh, ma'am. You can uh, choose to answer, uh, Doctor Somyadeep. I think uh, uh, your question and some of also my question we can go next, ma'am. You oh, can yes, fine, fine, answer. Fine, yes, fine. yes. Please. So should I should I start please. answering now? Please, please, ma'am. Yes, please. Yes. I, I mean, I made a note of key points raised by all the different speakers, and I'll try yes, and my best to answer yes. them. I I did not want you to. Uh, uh, change the page because there are so many yeah, yes so i'll start with what nabila said and i think she uh, raised a very important issue which is to do with uh, ensuring that this um, proper kind of you know uh, portability between states so what about um, you know uh, ensuring rights for interstate migrants because even now with this um, one ration card for the country actually uh, you know it's still not implemented but it's not clear whether and how this can be done across states and i remember attending a meeting with different line departments and the food corporation of india in um, it was either in jaipur or bhopal many years ago more than 10 years ago where this issue was discussed and according to the fci officials it's very very difficult to do because of the way that quotas are allocated the way that you know grain is drawn down from the food corporation of india so it's not a simple issue to address but this needs to be brought up and discussed properly so that was a very important point that nabila raised there then um, <clears throat> dr mehta talked about climate refugees and um, you know whether this is an issue that's important across south asia if i understood correctly and i think you know that it is certainly an important issue and there has been quite a lot of research especially in bangladesh because it's a low lying country but um you know it could be an issue in parts of india as well because the thing with gradual onset climate change is that you know it's not like a cyclone where you can see the immediate impact gradual onset means you know droughts can be getting longer or worse but you can't separate that out from many other factors which also contribute to migration so i have a big problem with the climate and migration discussion for that reason because it tends to attribute migration to climate change and also uses you know climate projections and models to try and predict how many people are going to migrate and those models are ridiculous in my opinion you know so climate is certainly an issue and climate change is real policy makers need to take it seriously and you know people are already adapting and that's what farmers are best at you know adapting to their climatic conditions 
they may be changing cropping patterns, they may be moving out of agriculture, you know, all kinds of things are happening. And it will contribute to um, migration in some way, but it can't be seen as the only factor that's leading to migration. Um, then uh, Mr. Runhari raised some uh, interesting points actually, and I'm very grateful because, you know, um, I don't really get a chance to interact with government officials directly very often. So every interaction like that is precious. I see he's not here, but I wanted to ask him uh, if we can access documents about Mumbai's rental housing policy for 2008. Maybe um, Dr. Arjun Kumar could help me on that. You know, I, I, I'm very interested in learning more because you know we can see if that was uh, done with migrants in mind, it's certainly something that we can learn from. And uh, then Dr. Lee Ziming Lee uh, raised some interesting questions about comparing the situation in China and India. I mean, the fundamental difference, of course, is your hukou system and us not having any such system. Uh, you know, in India, the constitution gives everybody the right to move and work wherever they want to. So there are no restrictions. Of course, in practice, there are a number of restrictions because you know, your ration card is tied to where you live. Many other kinds of benefits are tied to your, basically your domicile, you know. So you may have the right to live and work and move around, but there could be some other issues and barriers related to the way you can access government support as a migrant, you know, so, and that's hardly ideal. The, you made the point about <clears throat> the social mobility of migrants, children and grandchildren. I disagree when you say that their children are not socially mobile. I actually think they are quite mobile because one of the things that migrants do is when they send their remittances home, I've seen this across many locations in India and other countries like Myanmar and various other countries that I've worked in. Migrants invest in education, you know, and they are sending their children to uh, English medium schools. They're very highly aspirational for the future of their children. They always say, we don't want our children to become laborers like us, you know, so this generation is breaking that pattern. Historically, they may not have been very mobile, but they are mobile now. They are socially mobile, you know, through education, they are able to um, go, go through those uh, sort of caste and class barriers that they were facing in previous generations. Of course, it's as I was saying in my talk, it's a back and forth process. It's not smooth sailing for them by any means, but they are investing in that and it is happening. And they are finding jobs that are, you know, um, sort of low level office jobs. Even in the informal sector, they may have better jobs than their parents with more stability and better pay. And they are associating with a slightly higher class of people, you know, so that is the social mobility that I am seeing. Uh, of course, migrants are important consumers, as you rightly point out. And informally, there are a number of services and markets that have been set up to cater explicitly for migrants coming into an area. And um, you know, so, so that hasn't gone unnoticed for business people. They know that they are consumers and they do cater to them as consumers. And it, but of course, it's not, you know, reflected in national statistics in any way. Uh, so that is an important point that you raised. Thank you very much. 
um then um uh, professor pc mohanan uh, talked about states passing laws that restrict employment to outsiders i think that's an absolutely critical issue i presume you're talking about um formal jobs rather than informal jobs if i understand you correctly and that that is introducing you know the kind of politics that you see between countries in a way you know they are um creating barriers for other people and coming and working in formal jobs so yes of course that is creating a kind of protectionism of their labor market because they don't want outsiders to come and take the jobs that they want their own people to have um so that of course uh, does raise some questions about whether or not it's a sound policy and that's not my area of expertise i have to say you know it's something you have raised an important issue but i tend to work with people who are working in the informal sector and who belong to those kind of dispossessed classes at the bottom of the pile and as far as i know there are no restrictions being placed on them coming because they need their cheap and disposable labor and you know they are being welcomed by industry not so much by politicians because they they you know they like to fuel people's insecurities about migrants but um certainly industry wants them and finally uh dr kumar made this point about migration being male dominated now i would say this is very much a function of statistics statistics tell us that it's male dominated but of course statistics do not properly understand patterns of female migration and they're extremely invisible in in numbers you know there there is a lot of female migration happening but it's simply not reflected in statistics because of the kinds of jobs that they do i mean informal estimates of domestic workers for example are that in india we have something like 90 million domestic workers there are no formal data on that you know hardly any data exists on this huge huge sector of occupation you know uh, occupation for women so that's just one example women are migrating for all kinds of jobs but no one really knows what they are we know we have some micro examples based on the you know detailed studies that we academics carry out and we know from other academics what they're finding in their areas but nationally there's no representation of that so i would dispute the statement that migration is male dominated i mean we all know about marriage migration that's in the numbers already but migration for work is not properly reflected in the figures and it is not male dominated i mean it may still be male dominated but not to the extent that we think there are many 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 women out there who are migrating autonomously not just with their husbands you know they're going by themselves i mean i i saw it on all the villages that i've worked in you know groups of young women i mean just to give you some examples there are groups of young women traveling from andhra pradesh to mumbai to do tile work you know you may not even know of this occupation this is kind of fine mosaic tile artwork and they grow in groups are very very young almost teenagers you know where are they in the national statistics you know there are many other occupations and groups of women and girls that are traveling for different kinds of work we don't know what that work is on the national level you know there are specific examples coming from different places but no kind of overall understanding of the pattern
Thank so, you. Thank you. Uh, yes. I'll just add, add one point that uh, uh, we also did many surveys, uh, especially uh, during last few years. And ma'am, I really work on housing and urbanization a lot. So I also have uh, some of my papers of on rental housing in EPW and many other places as well. And uh, uh, I will uh, contact uh, Samir sir. He was there when this uh, Mumbai, the time you mentioned, we really had one very good uh, panel discussion on rental housing. Uh, where he also uh, presented also Professor Piyush Tiwari, those who are all expert and also a participant from Hoodco from government side, uh, who also presented the rationale for the ARHC, I will share with you. One thing I really wanted to uh, also highlight that uh, based upon our work with Action Aid, IGSSS, all the civil society organization, uh, we tried to make a draft uh, rental housing policy for uh, government of Delhi. But before the election, that was, you know, and uh, we, we saw levers that what can be utilized, especially for these informal sectors. And uh, what we recommended that uh, the amount of 1500 for dormitory and other things, there is a lot of demand. But uh, the two issues which come really very hard, one is of operation and management and second is of political will. So uh, that is something at local level, since uh, most of the issues we all are also seeing uh, uh, coming here. Uh, system China, I would really love to you know, go there some uh, other day for the point of discussion. But Ziming, thank you for coming and raising this point. Dr. Samadip Chattopadhyay, over to you. You have been waiting very patiently. No, no, so, thank you. It's all. Yes. So, so I'm also listening to all the experts. So uh, actually, I have a couple of uh, like, uh, like three, four questions. Let me uh, keep it short. Uh, recently, Zondres has proposed for a, a decentralized urban employment and training. So it's called Do It. And it seems that the proposal has certain uh, important features like um, the expansion of public work scheme to absorb the uh, slack in the urban casual labor market, uh, then the possibility of improving the quality of local public infrastructure, then, uh, then there is a proposal for setting up of worker cooperatives as uh, placement agencies and so on. So how far it would be effective in addressing the, uh, the present challenges since many of the most vulnerable urban workers who can benefit from do it are likely to be the migrants. So this is uh, uh, question one and secondly, uh, what is your thought, ma'am, on the necessity and usefulness of, 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 say, formalizing some parts of the informal economy in the city? For example, uh, in India, in many cities, uh, many cities in India, they have no proper regular trash collection system, but they have thousands of uh, independent pickers, waste pickers. So they are often migrants, they are often very poor. Uh, they just uh, uh, sort the city's waste and sell uh, whatever they could. Now, would then, be, would, would then it be useful to reach them officially in the form of, say, by providing some training or some financial assistance or, or to say hire them directly? So if, if this, this can be done. Uh, another thing is that there's a lot of discussion uh, uh, which is related to the relationship of the migrants with the cities. And uh, just I was looking at one of the most recent reports by Ajivika Buro. So there uh, I have found out that the, a large number of migrants, they're actually viewing the city as a, as, a, as, a, as a site to maximize their saving to be invested in their villages. So, so and that is why the migrant families, they uh, live sometimes in the open or in some other rented accommodation, uh, not so well, so to save the money. So when, so, and, and when uh, uh, say some of the basic services like sanitation facilities and all these things are available in certain areas on a pay and use basis, uh, so, so they defecate in the open uh, and, and the circular migrants, particularly 
those belonging to the SCST communities or the Adivasis, uh, they, are, they are likely to make, they are unlikely to make certain permanent claims to the city. So, so, so instead of considering these type of coping strategies, uh, if we see the official policy rhetoric, uh, they mainly focus on say for open defecation free zone or, or beautification projects and so on. So do you think that any policy, because when we are talking about the national migra uh, migration, national policy for migrants, so do you think any such policies of the workers must recognize these coping strategies, which are, which are, which are sort of uh, informed by migrants' own logics, uh, their processes and their relationship that they have developed in the city. And finally, uh, on a larger scale, uh, if we see uh, the, uh, the, the economic, uh, uh, characteristics of the cities, then the service and jobs there, they are disproportionately concentrated in the big Indian cities. So do you think that the policies uh, to facilitate a more distributed pattern of urbanization by emphasizing on the uh, uh, so-called so -called secondary cities uh, could be useful? So uh, these are some of my uh, questions. So your thoughts on this. Yes, but ma'am, let me first, uh, uh, really ask you that should we extend the session by 10 15 minutes this is really excellent we are learning a lot yeah, I, I think uh, for another uh, 10 15 yes, minutes fine but not sure. more so that, that we can for one one minute also listen to uh, professor rb bhagat and professor metra yes, yes they, they are with us and one thing uh, this point sir has uh, uh, dr somya uh, sir has really raised uh, delhi government has done something like online job fair where uh, uh, it is being, you know, also said that more than 2 million jobs has been given during this pandemic in last uh, several months. So that has been, sir, also used Delhi as a case study and uh, other places. But uh, uh, when we see the plight of uh, the process, how it is going, then uh, we, we really see all the, uh, all the media channels also reporting that are really not up to mark and the process is so cumbersome that uh, you know not even the migrants you know like to go there uh, just to get into that uh, nevertheless uh, professor utpal day is joining us from northeastern hill university shillong nehu also we thought to have some voice from uh, uh, northeast as well uh, divya verma ma'am from ajika bureau i spoke to her this uh, morning uh, she has sent her best wishes also dr devalna kundu and I, they had some prior engagements they could not come. So they, they have sent the best regard to you, ma'am. Uh, Professor Utpal Day, over to you. Uh, yes, your video and your mic. Professor Day, yes. So please try to be brief. Yes, your, please unmute yourself. Professor Day, please unmute yourself. Uh, now, now I think you can hear me, no? Can. Yes, somehow I could manage to join because my video was not getting on. So much of the uh, lecture I could not follow earlier because I did not join. So only uh, and and now only discussion part mainly I joined and I saw threadbare and a lot of issues has been discussed. And uh, lastly, that Arjun mentioned that Delhi government also has online portal now that job seekers can apply through that, even the migrants also. Uh, all these uh, empirical and other issues, I am not going. Just looking at the recent few months scenario, just what I felt is that the fundamental thing that initially in the 18th and 19th century, 
So there was the disguised unemployment in the rural areas as in the book we studied. And led, that led to the migration of people in search of better job opportunities in the town or urban areas and contribute to the development in the urban cities. So it is a disguised unemployment pushed to them for them and migration took place. And international level, another thing that some countries, they only restrict this migration and allow the qualified people so that human resource percentage increase in those countries and different. different. And some countries, they need even for their basic works, unskilled works, they allow them to go. So there are different happens, but in, in the countries, within the country, if we see that unemployment push from rural to urban. And in the pandemic situation, what happened that people are forced because of the closure or other thing to the rural areas. And that created this guy's unemployment in the rural areas because they had to join the job in the rural area, but much of the job not available. So agriculture was the only option. And so now the intensity of this guy's unemployment intensified. Now question is at the same time, in order to accommodate them, several state governments started local level, some job creation procedure. Even Manrega also widened, no? Huh, definitely they are getting relatively less wages. But the question now will come that gradually when the urban activities opened up, already some opened up, industries opened up, businesses opened up, those who are working as a vendor, street food seller, all the many, many such things. So they came back. Now looking at even after staying some decades, they forced to come back and that in their mind, still now it is very fresh. So when there will be need for the laborers in the urban area, whether this re-migration, how it will happen. And because of that, at the countryside also for providing some job opportunities as there is an effort from all the government side because this is related to their political prospects also of many of the state governments. And another thing is that simultaneously as earlier one speaker mentioned that some state governments are devouring as you said, only the formal jobs, that government jobs, there is a quota. Maharashtra said, Gujarat said, Haryana. Some other states, Andhra Pradesh, that yes, job will be primarily preference given to the state people. But question is not that. Even in informal sector also, when from Bihar somebody will go to Punjab now and open a, uh, some uh, street food shops, the political pressure will be there not to give them or allow them to function rather the local people can get that work. So these type of situations may come and it is coming in some places. So these migrations which was considered to be development oriented or for the development, now it is going backward like in many cases. So Thank how you. you see this thing? Thank you. Thank you. Much other things I don't want yes. to Thank speak you. on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Professor De. Uh, Professor yes. Dashinkar, thank you for uh, listening to all of us very patiently. Uh, two points, really, uh, because our institute is impact and policy 
so it will be not good to leave policy uh, the economic survey really uh, 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 is very creative document nowadays and i am sure on this issue they will come up and cover a lot of things mm -hmm. and uh, related with the uh, economic survey of course is the budget dimension ma'am how do you see what should be done and uh, uh, what should be the institutional mechanism not only just for india but also at a global scale uh, because this migration issue be it international internal this has been highlighted and ma'am you are really leading in this aspect uh, uh, globally uh, ma'am how do you see a renewed focus on on this migration opportunity fraternity citizenship many things our panelists are also raising uh, should be there and and that pushed uh, should becomes the center stage ma'am over to you you can choose to answer anything and uh, also ma'am conclude then uh, once we will go to uh, uh, professor bhagat and professor mitra if you allow yes ma'am of course uh, yeah so let me briefly try and uh, reply to all the points that were put to me so first starting with dr chattopadhyay's questions uh related to say uh waste pickers in cities you know whether it would help to offer them some training or bring them under the fold of the formal institutional setup in some way uh, i think what you need to remember is that the poor often have an adversarial relationship with formal institutions they don't like them because of the way that they have been treated you know so they will do everything to avoid them and that is another reason why intermediaries are so important because they you know help them basically uh, relate to these institutions and government officials and so on you know and they can't deal with cumbersome procedures because you know everything is so complicated intermediaries are also used to fill out forms as you know very well you know for any number of applications and that you know refers refers also to the point that dr kumar was making about the online portal and cumbersome procedures you know so there is that kind of adversarial relationship that we have to recognize so i don't think that's going to work very well what i think would help them is if they are unionized and they do have unions they do have associations um you know so what we can do is to not prevent those unions from operating because uh, there is a move to um, you know interfere with unions or prevent them in some places through some government moves as i understand it you know certainly some industries definitely um exercise that kind of uh, restriction on workers unionizing and that's a very important way for them to mobilize collective uh you know their voice or protest against working conditions and the way they are being treated so i would say that they should be allowed to exercise their rights collectively to voice their concerns to unionize that would that would be a very important thing now when it comes to low cost housing you know um uh, somebody raised the issue of um, you know migrants using the city to maximize their earnings i think it was you uh, dr chatterjee again that's very true you know you know the kholi system in in mumbai and other places where eight migrants will share one room four migrants in the daytime for uh, while the you know uh the night shift people i mean the day you know, workers are out and then four workers at night and they have all of their meager possessions in a bag or two and that's it you know they're there literally to earn they try and remit as much as possible 
<clears throat> so they are very much in the city to maximize their earning opportunities and the way they use housing is also quite important now i have seen you know in interviews that i've had with migrant workers where they say that most of the time we um stay you know with our fellow workers and coolies and rented accommodation in very crowded situations like that but when the wives are visiting the city they will rent a separate room in the slum or somewhere you know so they want some privacy they want to be able to spend some time with their family so they use housing in different ways as well you know again i don't think any of the uh, policies are talking about this kind of different pattern of usage of housing and open spaces you know like you say these open spaces are not just coping mechanisms they may be you know cost saving mechanisms as well and these open areas are like common property resources you know for people in the city um so um, their right to the land also has to be recognized and their use of the land and um <clears throat> you know uh different ways in which they engage with the city has to be understood fully so that was one response to what you were saying then there's this issue of the big city focus you know in migration so all the migrants flocking to big cities you know now here i think the example of china would be very important because they actually um you know through the kind of um, rural industrialization programs did deflect some of that pressure away from big urban cities and create magnets for migrant workers in other parts of the country and i'm sure ziming li could say a lot more about that than i can um so there are examples where that, that has been done successfully so then turning to the points uh, made by professor day um uh, um you know these uh, points related to the unemployment moving from rural areas to urban areas i'm not so sure about that argument myself you know a lot of people migrate even into informal jobs because they get more work in the city this is simply the bottom line they get more regular days of work when they are in the city they may be out of work in rural areas but they're certainly not out of work in urban areas you know they all of them tell us that we're working an average of 5 days a week you know uh, some factory workers are trying to work overtime and even more from, than 5 days a week so of course it does depend a bit on how well that factory is doing at that point in time but the overall pattern is that they are getting more regular work so it's not just the fact that they're getting paid more there are other things a more regular work and uh, they also get paid a monthly salary quite often you know so it's not a piece rate arrangement which they complain about in rural areas and non farm work you know so there are definitely i i would say that that's a pattern that i have um observed and as to them coming back now even after having experienced that horrible situation during the lockdown it's true they they don't see a future in the villages which is why they left in the first place you know for a variety of social and economic reasons related to their exclusion which is what my talk was about Uh, so they are going back and in some ways they're eating humble pie you know they are not they don't necessarily want to go back to the very same employers who you know didn't fulfill their sort of patronage promises to them when the lockdown was happening but they know that aur koi chara hi nahi hai you know they have to go back the the like there there is nothing in the village for them 
And some of them say that they've kept relations going with their employers, you know, and they regret having gone back in such a hurry because, you know, there was, there was fear because after the first month of the lockdown, all sources of help dried up for many of them. And they were left with no understanding of what was going on. There was widespread panic and they just took to the road, you know, and so many of them walked back, as you know. But then when it was all over, you know, the employers were ringing them up because they have the phone numbers for all of them, you know, the thekedars and the intermediaries and all that. And then, you know, you may have seen these videos of farmers like distributing sweets to the workers when they came back, garlanding them and, you know, giving them a huge warm welcome when they went back. I don't know if this actually means in better working conditions or more wages, but certainly, you know, they were sort of, um, you know, they, they were welcomed back because, of course, the employers also recognized that they were nowhere without these workers. You know, their businesses were suffering. So it's it cuts both ways. So, you know, that's what, what's happened. And many of, of them have gone back now. Uh, and finally, yes, Dr. Kumar's big question about the budget and what we should do through institutional mechanisms. I mean, that's really difficult to answer like off the top of my head uh, right now. But what I would say is that rather than channeling all resources through the state, you know, and state institutions for migrant worker welfare and programs and interventions, I think more resources should be made available to people who can work with migrant workers more closely, you know, and that includes a number of committed NGOs um, you know, I mean, there are well-known ones like Ajivika Bureau and so on, who are quite well-resourced already, but there are a number of poor organizations, you know, that are also working with migrant workers. And maybe a fund needs to be set up for smaller organizations, you know, and the allocation of funding could be done in a transparent fashion, you know. So, I mean, I know that uh, lists are maintained on the, the better NGOs and you know, to eliminate fake NGOs. So I know that this kind of activity is done by the government all the time. So there are, you know, there are legitimate NGOs out there who have worked with communities for a number of years, who have built up relationships of trust with communities. You know, these are the organizations that are starved of resources. They need funding. They need money and, and government should seriously think of them as partners. Yeah, these are the people who are going to help in getting, you know, that agenda forward of helping migrants to have a better experience in cities, you know, to help them access what the government wants to give them in the first place. I mean, sometimes the government programs are there, but nobody knows which programs are even government officials themselves may not know. So, you know, all that kind, that needs money also to improve the record on that. So that's all I can say about that. So well, thank you. Thank you, Professor Deshinga. So uh, it's really an engrossing session. And, but at the same time, we're really running short of time. So uh, I just uh, quickly go to Professor Arbi Bhagat, just for his quick uh, comments or anything. Uh, maybe uh, a minute. Thank you very much. It was quite learning lot of comments I could hear, and it is quite uh, enlightening. But very quickly, uh, uh, we have to, uh, there enormous challenges are there. And one of the challenges is there, a partnership in the knowledge production 
about the migrant migration and migrants so for example one of the barrier it comes that we are discussing a lot here but uh, next day or next group of people academician will say that it is a problem of poverty so urban poverty you tackle problem of migration is not a problem you tackle informal sector so when you are talking about informal sector informal sector subsumes migrant workers why to talk migrant work no this disappears that is what but uh, pandemic has brought a momentum and understanding about the migrant situation and this situation is there migration stands and migrant stands as a theoretical category as a part of the social theory and that is about space and place poverty is not simply spill over of rural poverty to urban poverty urban place producing poverty so it is sometimes we have a misunderstanding a group of uh, academician like us and uh, you that uh, yes it is a rural poverty that is getting into urban poverty so poverty being multidimensional there are various things so space and place producing poverty similarly the informality informality is also produced by space and place and space time restructuring what professor desinger said that the the production process getting uh, dispersed and there is a flexible mode of labor exploitation well, how does the flexible mode of labor exploitation takes place if you see especially distributed especially decentralized way in multiple locations but centralized in the big city everything coming in so we have to have a group of us academician must have a voice and this migrant identity or a theoretical it, it must be integrated into theoretical framework and it must not be lost that it is a issue of poverty simply or informal migrant so this is one secondly we have a great now government is now thinking about like one nation one ration card and this rental housing for the migrant worker and something more regarding children's education when the children migrate along with their parents etc health is something where easily can be included so this momentum i think our uh, uh, our effort should be there that how to how to articulate or how to design as professor desinger has already said it's a great great challenge that one nation one ration card it's not an easy thing rental housing for the migrants it is not a easy, easy thing but there is a some 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 hope is there some understanding is there and there is a need to 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 contribute and lastly let me tell you ultimately we are talking about inclusion and there is a lot of tension between center and state migrants right and ultimately migration becomes it's not only international internal migration also is a political question also. so that we have to recognize not a domain of only economist economist or a demographer but also political scientists and therefore our understanding uh, and our partnership is very very multidisciplinary interdisciplinary partnership is very very important. so thank you very much time is very short so it's a quite enlightening yes, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you thank you professor so now uh, i request professor mitra to make big quick comments maybe a minute or so Professor Mitra, he's no, he's there. Yeah. Professor Rupnikar, sorry, yes. yes, there is connectivity problem. So yes, yes, please. Uh, okay, okay, yes, sir. Yes. 
sir has been muted again sir kindly unmute prasamitra um yeah i know i'm not able to i'm not able to uh, speak much right now because there is connectivity problem okay, okay. Sure, sure, sure. very frequent disruptions so so it's all right it's all right okay okay thank you so uh, professor pc mohanan if you if you please yes no i don't i don't think a lot of interesting points have come up and uh, i don't want to quote any individual or personal anecdote evidence you know which uh, everywhere around me i find it kerala is uh, where i'm staying currently we have a huge migrants uh, population from other states so let me not go into all those issues currently let me thank the uh, organizers and the speakers for giving some very good ideas thank you so well well then uh, then thank you thank you thanks to all of you and uh, if i uh, just uh, conclude there are mainly uh, three four broad takeaways from this discussion uh, it seems to me like firstly the, the this crisis should spark the government to to collect better data and work closely with uh, the other stakeholders who have a uh, close ground level connections and secondly uh, it is extremely important or crucial to offer the india's migrants a better social safety fallback so that they can avert the threat of uh, long term unemployment and and thirdly the failure to recognize migrants as a stakeholder in the urban development uh, seems to be one of the biggest mistakes in achieving india's uh, urban sustainability and realizing the goal of uh, sustainable development in india a national policy commitment as professor deshinger mentioned in his lecture in the form of specific programs for the migrants is indeed needed and it is important to enable them to claim access to the city services uh, as a as a matter of entitlement as a matter of right so thank you once again on behalf of team impri uh, uh, again i thank you professor deshinger and we hope to have your guidance in near future as well so, if you would like to have the last word yes <laughs> Ma'am, uh, just yeah, just five seconds. Ma'am, you mentioned about the wonderful. Uh, it's been a wonderful session, and and the interactions have been really, really deep and good. I've learned a lot as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, and I'd be very happy to carry on the conversation after this. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, ma'am. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank, thank you so much from all of us, and uh, for really. Uh, extending the time and and uh, enlightening all of us ma'am have a nice day uh, and, uh, on the last note i really want to taste the deccan tiffin uh, food <laughs> sometimes yes <laughs> thank you yes thank you yeah. we must do that we look forward thank, thank you, you so thank you everyone for joining in and uh, making this deliberation so enriching and uh, we all learned a lot and have a nice evening and have a nice day professor uh, dashinkar thank you thank you thank you very much everybody thank you dr kumar